Hello and welcome to another episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Today I conduct a conversation with a conductor whose Wikipedia page says is an English choral conductor. He is Conductor Laureate of the Berlin Radio Choir, Chorus Director of the London Symphony Chorus and for the last 37 years has been Chorus Director of the City of Birmingham Symphony Chorus. I think you could say he is THE English choral conductor. I'm pleased to welcome Simon Halsey. So welcome, Simon Halsey. It's wonderful to have you here. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to have the time to talk to you because we've known each other for many, many years and we pass like ships in the night and hardly ever have time to stop and uh, think. Yeah, I must have known you now for, oh, well, too many years to mention, I would imagine. Well, exactly. How long ago did you join the CVSO? I started playing with the orchestra in summer 1991. I also played for you when I was a student at the Birmingham Conservatoire, probably in about 1988, and you were conducting Sibelius's Second Symphony. Dear God. Well, I'm glad to say I can't remember that. (laughs) (laughs) I don't remember much about it. I may even have been in the viola section. So I'm admitting that publicly that I did play the viola at the Conservatoire. Um, I'd like to go right back to the very beginning. What are your first childhood musical experiences, Simon? Well, my musical background was rather privileged. My dad was a very famous choir conductor. And my mother sang in his choir and was the director of music, first of all, in a school and later became uh, head of the music department of a teacher's training college. So I was surrounded by music and my grandfather, though he was a self-made businessman who pulled himself up from absolutely nowhere, um, had become a church organist. And there was music in my family because I now realise we have all the lessons. My remarkable grandfather, who'd left school in Walthamstow at the age of 14 and was full of accomplishments so that he was a a qualified football referee, an excellent church organist, and worked his way up from T-boy to managing director of a large national company. And when he was in his 30s, he had two sons, and he knew his two sons weren't doing very well at their huge uh, primary school in Walthamstow. My dad's school report has him as number 109 out of 110 in the school. Um, and the school report says that Louis is a very naughty little boy and nothing will become of it. And my uh, grandfather realised that you could be a cathedral chorister and that wouldn't break the bank with the fees. And he wrote a letter to Mr. W.S. Lloyd Webber. And we have all the correspondence at home. My grandfather's letter to Lloyd Webber, who, of course, was the father of the two current ones, Andrew and Julian. Um, And he says, I have a musical little boy. Um, Could I bring him to sing to you? So he goes to take my dad to sing to W.S. Lloyd Webber at All Saints Church, Margaret Street which is a perfectly normal parish church, but had a choir school in those days of all things with just 16 boys. And my dad got in. And the next um, term, his school report says, Louis is an extremely clever and uh, diligent boy. So this change of atmosphere was the making of him. And he particularly admired a boy in the school called Hart, who was Tony Hart. Do you remember Vision On on BBC television? I grew up watching it, Simon. I remember it very, very well. 
indeed. So my dad said, told his father that he had to follow Tony Hart on to his secondary school, which was a school that my grandfather had never heard of called King's Canterbury. Anyway, my dad went there and from there, um, all the musical boys went to sing in King's College, Cambridge, to read music and sing in the famous choir. So just one decision by my working class grandfather um, realizing what the church can do for you had sort of set the family up. So my parents belonged to um, an extraordinary generation that was able to uh, get new opportunities through music scholarships, which meant that the minute I was born, the same was expected of my brother and I. Um, but my first recollections are having to attend my dad's choir practice every Monday night. I watched my dad rehearsing lots of music. And the thing I loved was all the organisation. I mean, I quite like the music, but I liked the fact that he had to put all the chairs out and put his music stand out and come up with 32 sets of music and put them on the chairs and take a register and so on. So very early on I was running a school at home with my teddy bears and so on taking registers and taking my father's vocal scores and handing them out to my teddy bears and then taking rehearsals and it sounds ridiculously um, pretentious now but basically I was doing it because that's what my dad did and very soon afterwards I was sent to me in the local parish church choir and we had a remarkable man in charge of that, who was also the head of music at the local grammar school. And he loved music with a passion. So when we sang, probably not very well, a Christmas carol or a, or a motet on Sundays, he would conduct weeping with the tears running down his face. And I remember at the age of six thinking, my God, there's something in this. If you add to that the fact that I was then um, sent to a very peculiar Froebel school, a sort of German way of teaching kids. And we had an amazing woman called Margaret Glyn Jones. And we had an hour of music with her every day that began with all the instruments you can possibly imagine being laid out on tables around the dining room. And then like a whole load of naughty puppies, we sat on the floor until she said go. And you could run and grab any instrument and then you could just simply play, mess about on it for 20 minutes. Oh, that sounds great fun. Well, this was fantastic. That plus obviously learning the recorder and so on, just like in a sort of Benjamin Britten uh, children's opera, meant that when I was sent away to be a cathedral chorister at the age of eight, um, music was you know, a very big part of my life. And I was very lucky to grow up at that extraordinary moment where post-1945 there was a lot of money for education and a lot of money for music and these things were still part of the curriculum together with a hymn sung in assembly every day so that we were absolutely surrounded by music. Going all the way back to the start of, of what you've just said, isn't it amazing that music and having the chance to experience music, your, your father being sent to a music school rather than normal school, what it does to a child, and it can unleash all sorts of potential that nobody knew was there, and how important that music education is to certain people. It's important to everybody, but to some it will unlock their, their intellect, their, their, their imagination. It's so important. 
Well, indeed. And I think it's not at all important how many of us go on to be professional musicians. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. If I think about all my fellow pupils in New College Choir in Oxford between 1966 and 71, only the very small minority of us went into music of some sort. And those of us who went into music of some sort, this is very, very varied. There are composers, there are managers, there are agents, there are conductors, there are singers, there are pianists, but also there are so many um, classroom teachers, businessmen, entrepreneurs, tech techies and so on, all of whom have something in common. Um, there is an extraordinary story I'd like to tell you that when I was 11, um, in my very privileged, admittedly, choir school, um, we decided, or my school director of music, who was a very gifted man, decided to write a musical for this prep school, these primary school aged children, on The Hobbit. And the reason he did this was that we all read The Hobbit, it was sort of compulsory reading. But J.R.R. Tolkien was teaching at New College, at the, at the bit of Oxford University, to which my school was attached. And we saw him every day. Um, and he was admittedly a bit of a celeb because he'd written a book that we all read. But this was years before the movies and before every single person in the world had heard, heard of it. I mean, at this stage, he was just a reasonably well-known author. And he just gave permission and we, we did a version of The Hobbit and we dearly, dearly, dearly loved it. And I told a BBC producer about this some 40 years later and she put together a radio programme about New College School's production of The Hobbit in 1969, I guess in 2019, 50 years later. And she interviewed us all. And it was the, the uh, interview was full of men who were 59 years old, weeping, weeping copiously, one after the other, saying this extraordinary musical where I suddenly felt as a lonely child that I belonged in a community where um, I wasn't terribly good at singing, but I did the props. And as a result, um, I've worked in theatre all my life. I wasn't terribly good playing at the bassoon in it. I realised I could never be an instrumentalist, but I founded one of the largest music agencies in the world. There is that moment, one Thursday in 1969, because of one extraordinary man, that everybody on this broadcast um, their life is entirely changed by it. And that is a truly wonderful thing that of course happens in the school play. Of course it happens with the rugby touchdown, the moment when you get a, when, when you bowl someone particularly splendidly in a cricket match and so on. But somehow music connects us so deeply, um, even when we're small, um, uh, from heart to heart. When you were allowed to jump up and grab an instrument off the table, did you have a favourite and why? When I grabbed an instrument off the table, I didn't like the brass instruments because I couldn't get a noise out of them. I liked the <laughs> easy woodwind instruments, which is a terrible thing to say. I could get a no noise out of the flute straight away. Um, the, I don't think there was an oboe. 
Um, uh, I didn't fancy the whole thing of the reeds on the clarinets and so on. So actually I picked up the violin um, and I didn't like the squeakiness of it. So later on I learned the cello, but I learned the cello because I could sit down and it felt comfortable and natural. And it turned out not to be natural at all. I mean, I, I feel to practice the cello and the piano every day for 15 years um, and realized at a very early stage that I had no aptitude for instruments. All this while, I'd always had a natural aptitude for singing. And so um, what I discovered was without too much work, I could be one of the better choristers. And however hard I worked, um, I was at the back of the cellos or I was in the second orchestra with the flutes and so on. And I had a suspicion I very much loved orchestras, but it wasn't quite my thing. Whereas choir just felt like coming home every, every time I went. And because I was in a choir school, I sang Evensong every day um, from the age of eight onwards. And I looked forward to it with a love and excitement that I, I just really can't describe. I mean, it was the best hour of my day. Can you tell us where you went to university? And did you study music whilst you were there? Well, I did two bits of university. I read music at King's College, Cambridge from 1976, 79. And then I studied conducting at the Royal College of Music for a year from 79 to 80. Um, because I'd got interested in being a conductor very early on. And I'd been at the Canford Summer School of Music every, every summer. And at my secondary school, I had somehow managed to persuade all my fellow pupils to do concerts with me, making a choir and a small string orchestra and putting on concerts in the chapel and getting the school printing society to make posters and putting them up and so on, um, and learning an awful lot on how not to do it. The whole mixture of having what you think's a good idea, seeing it through, discovering the pitfalls, becoming very nervous, not having enough time to learn the score, taking under uh, undercooked rehearsals, getting away with the concert by the skin of your teeth and then loving it in retrospect and trying to learn from that as I went along. So even when I went to study at Cambridge, there were two things I was there for. One was to sing in the amazing choir, um, but the other was to somehow get enough music background to become a conductor, because in my generation, um, you couldn't study conducting. There wasn't anywhere you could yet study conducting. The reason I went to the Royal College in 1979 was that I was in the first ever intake of students to be allowed to conduct at postgraduate level at music college. Uh, David Wilcox and Norman Del Mar founded a new course and I was one of the first four people on that course and therefore one of the first people ever to be able to study only conducting. Up until that time, of course, you could be a first study violinist and get conducting lessons from Adrian Bolt or whatever. But until that point, there had not been the possibility of studying conducting, even though the Germans and the Austrians had been doing it for centuries. Now, this is going to be very interesting because my first ever conducting teacher was Norman Delmar's son, Jonathan Delmar, he of Baron Writer Urtext edition fame. I wonder whether you could tell us what you learned from Norman Delmar, and, and, and then I'll be very interested to see whether his teaching style 
was similar to Jonathan's? Well, let me see. What do I remember about? Well, the first thing to say is before I come on to Norman Delmar, is I learnt most of what I know today from George Hurst at the Canford Summer School of Music, which is the only place I've ever come across in my whole life where absolute rigour of what you do with your arms and your hands and so on was taught. The absolute certainty of what the patterns were, of how you had to be completely clear, of how upbeats had to be exactly in time, in the character of what you wanted to show, all these absolute basics. Um, and to the Canford Summer School and, and George Hurst, I owe a very great deal. When I went to the Royal College, Norman was extraordinary because he was a living encyclopedia of orchestral music. He's written the books that I still use, The Anatomy of the Orchestra, is right beside me, published by Faber and Faber. As a man, he was able to teach me how to learn a score, how to be terribly worried about all the transpositions, whether a horn in F or a horn in C teeth and so on, what all this meant, how you had to learn a score inside out, how you had to know what every instrument was playing um, or every voice was singing all the time about to go very deep into the background of a score and so on and so on and so on. So huge amounts of depth, how, how to prepare. Then we would go to his house on a Saturday morning and he was always naked when we got there because <laughs> he, lived, he lived in a magnificent house um, at the end of the Northern Line and we would set off at half past seven and go out there on the first train on the Northern Line and then walk a couple of miles to this amazing house. Um, and as we arrived, he'd be having his morning swim in his indoor swimming pool, where he would swim naked and would be just wandering upstairs to get, uh, to get dry, while we had a sort of second breakfast uh, downstairs and met with each other. And he had a library that was like everyone's fantasy of what a library should be. Every score, every book, sets of orchestral parts, photographs, and a grand piano, um, and instruments piled up in the corner. And this encyclopedic knowledge of music and total, total passion. Um, you know, Radio 3 was on in the house as we got there. Um, the endless talking about things um, from one piece to another. If, you, if you're doing this, you'll find the same in Beethoven's Third Symphony. But wait a minute, when the horns do that there, you need to compare with Rachmaninoff's Isle of the Dead. But wait a minute, that would be so fascinating if next week we looked at Scriabin too or whatever. This is an ex extraordinary excitement for music. Now, George Hurst had given me technique and George Hurst had given me respect for the score and George Hurst had frightened me because of my lack of ability and my lack of aptitude because there were much better students there. Um, in a completely different way, Norman thrilled me with the possibilities of what music could be. And I realised that Norman himself had a very flawed and eccentric conducting technique. I would look at him and I would think, well, I can't see four beats in the bar. But orchestras played fabulously for him. And if I wanted to listen to a recording to this day, 
of Enigma Variations, I'd choose his. Um, he was someone where enthusiasm, heart, love and knowledge combined in the most extraordinary way. Yeah, that's very interesting in the fact that with Jonathan Del Mar, he was also incredibly diligent about learning the structure of scores, about learning your transpositions. I remember our, our piano classes, we would have two grand pianos and Jonathan would tell us the week before which the pieces uh, the conductors would conduct. But then when you walked in the room, you never knew which part you would get to play on the piano. So for instance, I was, I was a violinist and, and played a little bit of viola, but I always seemed to get horns in F and cor anglais, or I'd be on basses, or I'd be on trumpets and clarinets in you know one hand in A and the other in B flat. And so much like Norman, you, uh, I had to learn transposition. I had to learn uh, the clefts. But yeah, he was very similar styles to his father in the fact that the class was much more about learning the scores and the structure and the architecture than it ever really was about the technicalities of beating. Ah, but let me tell you a story here. Um, I, I interviewed um, Zubin Mesa um, a few years ago, and I asked him about his conducting teaching, which was in Vienna. Um, and he was in the same class as Claudio Abado. And Mesa and Abado were the naughty boys in the class. And for three or, three or five years, they only studied form, architecture, and so on. And so I said, what did you do? He said, well, we, we studied Haydn symphonies. What else? Oh, no, Haydn symphonies. There are a lot of them. We studied Haydn symphonies, form, architecture, and so on, because without it, you can make no decision as a conductor about tempo or tempo relationships or where a great moment is or where a magic moment is, because unless you know and you've worked out, you've deconstructed the music and you understand it properly, you can't make a single informed decision about the music, which I now know to be true. And I said to him, how much of the time in your five years of studying Haydn symphonies did you spend conducting them with a question of you know, physical technique, what you looked like, how your upbeats were, whether you were conducting small or smooth or long four bar phrases? He said, it may have been talked about for about five minutes in the whole five years. It was only academic structure. Wow. Wow. That's unbelievable, isn't it? Absolutely unbelievable. Yeah. Well, except retrospectively, I realise how important that is. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Very important. When you talk about uh, conducting technique and also uh, how orchestras respond to it, in that you know, an orchestra will will play for for anybody really if they if they have a bond with them. So, for instance, with Norman, you know, as an ex-player, when you, somebody stands in front of you who is so well versed and so well read and has so much knowledge of the music, it almost doesn't matter whether what they're doing with their hands and arms. But then also there are other times when you see somebody whose technique is so clear and so wonderful that you immediately respond to it and play to it. Uh, and and there, there's a chemistry there. It's very, very interesting. And I think what's so fascinating about conducting is that everybody is a different mixture of abilities and inabilities, of securities and insecurities. And everyone that you work with, and exactly the same goes for choirs, um, 
uh, respond to you with a different chemistry according to also where they are coming from. I remember Andres Nelsons. I interviewed him for the Digital Concert Hall of the Berlin Philharmonic. And he said, um, one of the things you have to do is not only know very well what you want to do, but you've got to be listening to those you are working with um, and seeing what they are offering to you so that you may one week do Tchaikovsky 5 in Birmingham and the next week in Leipzig. But what you are offered in Birmingham in the first hour is completely different from what you are offered in Leipzig because it's a different group of people, a different set of educations, a different set of lives. And if you're any good, you can also think, wait a minute, I'm taking this sound, that there are things I can do here. Um, there is a precision here or a color here. And I've re only recently learned to do that with choirs and I wouldn't be able to do it with an orchestra. I mean, I think one thing we should say now is that although a lot of my training is with is to be an orchestral conductor the most important moment in my life is when age 25 simon rattle says to me simon you're not bad but please don't be another second rate orchestral conductor um you do seem to have a particular flair for training choruses for large orchestras why don't you see if the, if that's something you could specialize in and i was devastated for 12 hours and i can remember waking up the next morning with all the weight in the world lifted from my shoulders because although he was only 28 he'd had the perspicacity and honesty to point something out to me that was absolutely true and which i couldn't see um, and that is one of the most wonderful things about my musical life that by making the right decision early on and going for the one thing that i did actually have a gift for um, and getting rid of the things that i was quite frankly a bit ordinary at i've been allowed to if you like sit at top table doing my very small specialization not being famous at all and not being in the limelight at all but working with all the very best because I just have one most peculiar little skill. <laughs> I wouldn't say that you're not very famous. Uh, I would say that everybody knows you're standing in the choral conducting world. But even in the choral conducting world of my exact contemporaries, you see, when I was 18, I would have thought that I would have followed my great school friend, Peter Phillips, into conducting something like the Talis Scholars. And by accident, by following the orchestral field for a while, which turned out not to be my thing, um, I finished up in something that I'd never even imagined existed, which is the choral side of symphonic music, which not very many people finish up in because there's not very much uh, room for it. Um, but, you know, when I started at the CBSO Chorus, there wasn't a single piece that I had to prepare for Simon Rattle that I'd ever even heard before, let alone studied. And one of the most peculiar things about starting as a conductor is that in the beginning you have to do everything for the first time. And then you look back 30 or 40 years later and you think, how on earth did I have the courage or the bravado to do that? And of course, we are carried through it um, in youth by an energy that perhaps we don't have later on um, uh, when we begin to question slightly more what it is we're doing. Looking at what you said about Andres, the analogy I use is that often 
the best conductors will appear in front of an orchestra and they are offered a cake. And the best conductors will look at the cake that, are, that they're offered and think, well, actually, I quite like that cake, but maybe I can add my own icing. Maybe I can add, exactly. Maybe I can add my own hundreds and thousands. Maybe I should make it a three-tier cake, not a two-tier cake. The, the most frustrating conductors we found in the CBSO at the time were the ones who looked at your cake, put their foot on the pedal of the pedal bin, threw the cake in the bin, and then decided they were going to make a completely brand new cake. And I think Andrus was the master of of seeing the cake and thinking, oh, yeah, I can work with this cake, uh, and I can I can make it something special. Yes, I agree. And I think Andrus is already, but certainly will be, one of the two or three very greatest conductors of his generation. And as usual, four times in a row, the CBSO got it right. Um, and it has been an extraordinary part of the success of the CBSO. Talking about the CBSO getting it right, uh, I gather it was in 1983 you started your job, which you are still the um, chorus director of the City of Birmingham Symphony Chorus. Tell us about when the CBSO got it right in 1983 and offered you that job and those early days with Simon. Well, just getting the job is a good story. Um, when I left the Royal College of Music, I had one thrilling year at Scottish Opera conducting something called Scottish Opera Go Round, which was taking community and education projects to the Highlands and Islands and secondary schools. In the days before community work and education outreach existed, and I discovered that, you know, you can tell from my ridiculous accent, that as a sort of public school and Cambridge educated person, actually the thing I was best at was education and community work, and it was very deeply thrilling. And while I was doing that, I saw an advert for director of music at the University of Warwick and I applied for it. And incredibly, at the age of 21, I got it. Um, I wrote a very cheeky letter to the vice chancellor saying I'd be the same age as the students, but I really thought I would be good. I could organize things. I'd done a fair amount and I was really good with um, you know, amateur singers and amateur players. And uh, the vice chancellor, a man called Busworth, um, was very go-getting and he thought he would invite Simon Rattle who'd just been appointed chief conductor of the CBSO and was 25 years old to come and decide which of the three finalists for director of music at Warwick University should get the job um, and Simon chose me and Simon famously said to the vice chancellor but it's a bit of a risk he's a bit young and the Vice-Chancellor looked at Simon and said, are you, at the age of 25, Chief Conductor of the CBSO, telling me that someone else is a bit young for a job? And almost simultaneously, Thomas Trotter, aged 22 or 23, started as city organist. So this was, Simon uh, started just before me. I followed on and joined. Thomas Trosser joined the city and there was this extraordinary age where we got those choices and those chances um, and I can't particularly speak for Simon or for Thomas who were extremely gifted and very good at what they did but I only had enthusiasm and admittedly years and years and years of watching people do it and all sorts of extraordinary experiences as a child and a student but it's a miracle that it all hung together because um, I didn't know really how to learn a score. I didn't really know how to structure 
a series of rehearsals. I didn't know any of the repertoire of a symphony orchestra and its chorus. And I did it by sheer um, enthusiasm and by working as hard as I knew how. And I do know that there was a period after about a year and a half where things weren't going very well. And I know they did consider bringing my contract to an end. We did the music makers of Elgar and it wasn't good enough. And I do remember Simon leaving the piano rehearsal and saying, I am going to come back tomorrow and this has to be good enough. And I remember thinking quite clearly, this is the defining point in my life. Either this time tomorrow it is good enough or uh, I'm out on my ear. And somehow, without any particular technique, I got the choir into a position to be better the next day and I survived. Um, and they stu stuck with me. And one of the things I've tried to do ever since, now I'm in charge of an awful lot of people who are younger than me, is wherever possible, I try to give them, uh, you know, an extra yard, to um, some advice and some help to try to make sure that they can show that they can do the job. And the same with singers as well. Warn people that they're not doing terribly well, give them some money for tuition or whatever it is, give them the path for self-betterment and hope that they'll sort themselves out. Because Simon and Beresford and Ed Smith were so generous to me at that point. Maybe you could tell us now, uh, having just admitted that you, know, you, you didn't really know how to learn a score quickly, how do you go about learning a score now over these years? How have you, have you learned a, a method that, that you now stick to? Yes, I do. With a, with a small choral piece, what I do is this. I start with the words. So I go and see what form the words looked like when the composer read them. Um, and I see then how often, which bits the composer left leaves out and which bit, which words the composer repeats. So, tiny example. There's a very famous motet by Parry called My Solar is a Country Far Beyond the Stars. And he begins, my soul, my soul, there is a country. So he says, my soul twice. So why did he say it twice? What did he mean by it? What was uh, the poet's original intention? And what did Parry get from it? And how did he then construct his piece? At that point, I do an analysis of the length of all the phrases, which things um, are short and which things are long, what the architecture of the overall piece are. So just like a Mozart um, uh, symphonic movement, what's the first theme, what's the second theme, where's the development, where's the return, which bits are left out, which bits are amplified and so on. So you understand the phrase lengths and so on. Having seen Daniel Barenboim's score of the Deutsches Requiem by Brahms, where he figured every single chord of the entire 90-minute work, oh, wow. <laughs> I now increasingly figure if it's appropriate to the music and see where every phrase is going harmonically and so on. I used to be much more emotional about it, and now I'm much more academic about it. 
because I know and trust my emotional responses to pieces. Um, I understand completely the magic moments, the exciting moments. Um, I make sure I voice all the fugal bits that I know who's important, that, what, that in fact we've had four entries and now we're getting a fifth one in the bases um, and that base entry shouldn't have been there, that we've then got two bars where nothing happens and then the sopranos return or the first violins return, but at half speed, a beat too early, all that sort of thing. So, I mean, it's, it's hours of academic analysis, but I try to make it as much fun as possible. Uh, I constantly, because of Norman, ask myself if a singer or a player put their hand up and said, um, what's supposed to be happening here? What note am I supposed to be doing? This has a sando here, but it didn't first time round. I can immediately answer because I know what the answer is. There are so many examples of this. Brahms in the German Requiem, famously in the re re repeat passages, doesn't put any dynamics. And does this mean because he put them in first time, he trusts us to remember them? Or does he mean that the second time it sounds different without? It doesn't really matter which decision you make as long as you make it with knowledge. Um, and so the, the whole process of learning a score, which I now try to teach to my students, is to make sure that you understand the music as deeply as possible so that you can be as close to the composer's intentions as possible, which is a, which is a very naive way of saying you just, like an actor, you study your text and study your text till you know it off by heart and you think about the possibilities of what every word could mean. So it sounds, therefore, like you make notes in your scores. I'm a huge um, score marker and I, do, I write in every last thought I have and my scores... Um, I very often barely look at them once I'm conducting because I do believe by now I've basically asked myself every possible question and while I was asking myself every possible question I've to a certain extent learned the piece off by heart. But and Norman's scores were very heavily marked and George Hurst's scores were very heavily marked. And in the choirs I sang in, we sang with enormous precision. So our choral scores were very much marked. And I love bowed orchestral parts. Um, when I worked a lot with Robert Shaw, the great American choral conductor, who was also a good orchestral conductor, um, uh, he would think about every conceivable bit of balance. You know, I have sets of orchestral parts of the Verdi Requiem where everything you know trombone parts marked down to mf little bell-like accents on semi-breves to make sure we can hear the violas or whatever it is and i had sets of orchestral parts that i put out for the works the few works i conduct where i've already done all the work in advance and simon rattle has his own sets of orchestral parts but the fascinating thing about simon rattle is he then conducts from entirely unmarked library scores that's true that's totally true i've uh, at time had scores that simon would have used in the cbso and and had to conduct off them um, because I don't have a copy of my own and occasionally I've seen one word here or a dynamic there 
but I mean, he's not going to get through you know, anything like the amount of pencil lead that I or you would get through marking up a score, um, which just seems amazing, absolutely amazing that that he conducts off of such blank scores. Yes. So I don't know how, uh, I have asked him how he learned scores and uh, the interviews on the Berlin Digital Concert Hall, but I am ashamed to say that um, I can't quite remember uh, beyond the thing that he began with the big view and went, went in ever closer and closer, but it may be he does it all in his head. So having been with the CBSO since the age of 23, you then conducted in Berlin the Rundfunk Corps for 14 years, and you've also been with the LSO, or the London Symphony Chorus, now for eight years. Can you tell us what the differences are, if there are any, between those three ensembles that you were basically conducting all at the same time? Yes, so these are the three great choirs. The City of Birmingham Symphony Chorus is obviously a, an amateur choir singing to professional standards, um, about eight, con eight to 12 concerts a year, amateurs giving up theoretically one evening a week, but actually it's over a hundred evenings a year, for the love of it, to belong to the greater family of the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra. And the London Symphony Chorus is similar in London. The Rundfunkchor in Berlin, which means the Berlin Radio Choir, um, is a full-time professional symphonic choir. We have no such thing in this country. Um, so my job there was exactly like an orchestra conductor. I was the chief conductor of 80 people um, who gave a concert most weeks, um, often with the Berlin Philharmonic or the radio orchestras, and sang the, but the repertoire in all three places was the same. The learning process in all three places is the same, because whether you're professional or very good amateur, singers are slightly different from players you still have to learn the music inside your head you sit and you still have to find where the hell a d is in your head um you, the the listening skills of course are all the same um having good internal rhythm excellent intonation balance blend similar vowels an understanding of the text um an ability to follow the conductor all these things as the same. Here are the differences. It is to do with personality. The City of Birmingham Symphony Chorus from its founding days was founded to sound youthful and vibrant and to work on sound. It's always had those qualities and it has a very particular repertoire which is based on the history of its chief conductors. Uh, it's a repertoire from about Haydn to the present day with a fair amount of contemporary music but being very good particularly at early 20th century music and this is a choir that doesn't have an enormous ego nor do they have any very strongly inflated idea of their own worth and they see themselves as being extremely privileged to belong to the CBSO um, and through their chorus master, who is, you know, as it were, the leader of their family, to belong to the chief conductor and the orchestra. Um, and they know their place within the CBSO hierarchy. Now, 
none of that is quite the same anywhere else. So the LSO and the London Symphony Chorus are separate beings where one traditionally the orchestra hired the chorus from time to time but the chorus had to be very go-getting under its great chief conductor Richard Hickox they would hire themselves out to the Royal Philharmonic to the Philip to the Philharmonia for foreign touring to the London Symphony for lots of recording in a much much more competitive world they did more concerts, more recordings. They had to raise their own money and run themselves as a business, which means there's a very different feeling to it. Now, in my time in London, we've actually merged the two operations again, but there is a very different sort of go-getting energy about the London Symphony Chorus. Um, and their sight reading skills are very good. And I have to get in the end to roughly the same place as the CBSO, but I have to go on an entirely different journey because of a completely different sort of per set of personalities and a different set of experiences. And rather like what we were talking about earlier with Andres Nelson's, you've got to read your choir and go with their strengths and not irritate them by rehearsing their strengths, but by finding uh, and assisting with the things that they're less good at. So the CBSO chorus and the LSC can sing brilliantly together, but the, the journey I go to get them to the same standard on Marla 2 is entirely different. And I find this extremely um, exciting and um, stimulating. Um, now, my choir in Berlin, if anything, I spent the first 10 years learning from because they are the equivalent of the Berlin Philharmonic. If you imagine a choir of peerless ability, of the most beautiful tenor sound you have ever heard, of technique that you can barely believe, coming from a completely different tradition where sound is almost everything. I had to learn how to work with their sounds, their traditions, their repertoire, which is completely different. Um, and the variety of repertoire. Now this is terrifying because a professional orchestra and a professional chorus um, of a non-specialist type have to do Mozart one week, Shostakovich the next, James Macmillan the next, um, and Beethoven the next, and yet we're supposed to sound like specialists in all of them. Um, and it is the most astonishingly punishing and uh, nerve-wracking thing to try to do authentic Mozart, if you like, one week, um, and to sound quite different in Shostakovich 13 the next. Uh, I mean, it was just a fascinating journey. And at the beginning of it, I didn't speak German, now I do. I would have to do quite often, let's say, Mahler's Second Symphony with all my choirs, and not with one of them would I rehearse it the same, even though I bet if you played three recordings next to each other, you might find that my priorities had led the three choirs to sound quite similarly. Yeah, well, I mean, you're, you are going to rub off on a choir much like a, you know, a music director of an orchestra rubs off on, on the orchestra. The, 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 you know, the orchestra I played under 
three music directors. You've been involved with four music directors of the CDSO, and I'm sure you've heard the sound changes that happen with an orchestra. And I, and I'm, I'm bet it's exactly the same with a choir that you know the person in front will rub off on that sound. Um, and will oh, more play. so, yeah, more so because of course the choir singer is singing with. I mean, this is a ridiculous thing. Of course, every orchestral player is playing with their whole body and so on. But if uh, if a singer um, is getting uh, getting a variety of new signals from a gesture of a new conductor, it shows even quicker in the vocal response because there is nothing between the vocal response of the singer and the conductor, whereas at least there is the instrument between you as a violinist and Simon Rattle at the front. So the response is even, is, is if anything, even greater. And I realized I had to begin teaching because by the time I'd been privileged to learn how to do it from the Berlin Radio Choir, the CBSO and the London Symphony Chorus, I didn't want the next generation to have to go on a journey quite as tortuous as the one I took myself on, <laughs> um, because an awful lot of it can be taught. I teach and you teach. Um, I wonder whether you could tell me, basically I want to know how you teach um, and, um, and how much you enjoy it as well. I teach because of a very strong feeling that gets stronger and stronger that I would like to share what I've learned. I enjoy it more than anything else I do. Um, I have gone up from 20% to 50% teaching and I can see a situation in which the teaching uh, in 10 years time would be something that would be the majority of what I would do. I would never do it exclusively because I think that it's important that any teacher should have his or her hand in the profession at all times and not be forgetting to try out the things that one is teaching. Second thing is I teach very specifically only postgraduates um, because that is the level at which I feel uh, comfortable. I also teach specifically four students a year to be chorus masters of symphony orchestras. I'm the only person in the whole world who does that. And what I'm doing is I'm teaching what I know. I teach a repertoire every year that is Mahler 2, Beethoven 9 and so on, along with, of course, a cappella repertoire. I believe that I must teach students who have their hands on performers. So although we do do work on, around pianos for six hours a week, these students have their own choir to make their own mistakes on, which I supervise and feed back on every week. And they are assistant conductors of four other choirs and conduct them. They watch five distinguished professional conductors work every week. They have first study singing lessons because I don't think you can conduct a choir unless you can sing. They have piano and oral skills because I'm simply horrified by what they can't hear. <laughs> um, they have a, a lot of score preparation classes 
um, because I do need because that can be absolutely taught. Um, and they are members of the CBSO chorus so that they see me at work and we can discuss what I get right and what I get wrong. And I begin to use the students in little bits during the year. So they've got the feeling of what it is to work professionally. I make sure they meet Rattle, Mirga, and, uh, and so on, all the great conductors. Um, I make sure they see how it works backstage. They do a number of weeks working in the office at the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra. They have to work in the organization of things at Birmingham University, which is where I teach. Um, and we, we basically, and we do it for only one year, and we make sure that they basically have an almost overwhelmingly exhausting year, which is how their lives will probably turn out if they successfully pick up work. And they have to make quick decisions and they have to learn how to work with their fellow human beings. And we ask lots of people for feedback and we give them a safe space in a year in which they can ask any question and fail spectacularly. <laughs> All the things no one, no one ever allowed me to do. And I try to then make sure they have an hour or two with you and with as many other people as they can conceivably meet. Now, I hope that they will pick up a certain amount of technique from me, but I do not insist that they take um, all my techniques. And I do give them the possibility that there are a million different ways of interpreting a score, but I do require them to understand my way of doing things, even though they may not use it. Well, having been involved with your students on two occasions now, I can tell you that I've never had a set of students be so inquisitive about things I was telling them. Uh, also so ready to sort of adapt and listen and um, I mean I, I come at it as you know I'll give them what it what the orchestra is doing and how you need to help the orchestra you know they get enough choral conducting from you I mean you know I can teach nothing extra about choral conducting but I give them a, an idea about how uh, how they can help the orchestra and they're they're so so inquisitive and and uh, it's, it really is like sitting in a room with four huge sponges who just can't wait to be given more and more water. During your time at the CBSO, you're synonymous with two separate sets of concerts. The Christmas concerts every year, which is uh, your baby, if I may call them that, but also the sing-alongs where amateurs... Uh, I've played in these and they are amazing things where the orchestra is on the stage of Symphony Hall and the whole audience is the chorus. And you, Simon, you get that chorus by hook or by crook by the end for us to, to play the, through most, if not all, of an entire choral work. Can you tell us a little bit about how the sing-along started? But also, I know you're very passionate about the Christmas concerts every year. Well, the Christmas concerts are fairly easy. I took a format that had been got from the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic by Ed Smith, uh, who was then the managing director of the CBSO. And uh, all we've done basically is to try to renew that format every year. 
by making sure that most of the arrangements and so on every year are new. Um, I think we've done thousands of new arrangements over a 40-year period. Um, and I love that very much, partly because it brings the whole CBSO family together. One of the great privileges of my time at the CBSO was when I joined, there was just the orchestra and the chorus. And then I did point out to Ed and to Simon Rattle very early on that we needed a youth chorus. And about five years after I pointed it out, they said I could found that and the children's chorus. And then the So Vocal and the various outreach work. So the family has grown and it's the one occasion in the year when the whole family performs together. And the idea that the CBSO should be 500 musicians, of which some 90 are paid, is to me extremely um, important because it means that our tentacles in the city are much deeper and there are many more tentacles than if there were only 92 players. How true, how true. Um, uh, then the sing-alongs are part of the same thing. How do we get the orchestra as involved in the community as possible? Because although I think it's absolutely clear why Birmingham needs an orchestra, um, it is not absolutely clear to every member of the one million, one and a half million people who pay their rates in Birmingham. And uh, so the whole sing-along thing is to just try to involve as many people in music making as possible so that they say, aha, the CBSO, I belong to that. I know what it is to be in Symphony Hall. I'm comfortable there. I know where to buy a ticket. I know I will be welcome. And it's to give as many people as possible the key to the door. And that is why, that is really why I do absolutely everything I now do. The, with the sing-alongs, you've had some people travelling from further afield than Birmingham though, haven't you? Oh, the sing-alongs people come from all over the world. And we now do ones in Berlin where they come literally from Australia and so on in groups. And if you can build this into a big enough and exciting enough thing, um, you finish up with uh, people who decide that once a year they're going to go on holiday and build a week around the sing-along. And of course, that is deeply, deeply wonderful. And if it means in the case of the CBSO that we have a fairly considerable following in Paris and Milan, uh, well, that doesn't hurt at all on the days when we play in Paris or Milan. So at the end of each podcast, Simon, I ask my 10 questions and they are the same 10 questions for every conductor who comes on the podcast. So if you're ready, what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? I love the sound of a really well-integrated choir where everybody is listening to each other. What do I hate? I hate when either a choir or an orchestra is simply everyone playing for themselves because the circumstances are, are not encouraging them to be a family. If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? Oh, walking in the countryside um, and being free of the tensions and the disciplines of the everyday life of music. Favourite conductor of yesteryear? I 
think my favourite conductor of yesteryear is going to be Robert Shaw, who uh, was the chorus master of Toscanini and later the chief conductor of the Atlanta Symphony. And from him, I learned more than anybody else because he had more systems that could be learnt, taught and transmitted than anybody else. So that for normal musicians, it was, he was not one of the world's great instinctive musicians, but he was someone from whom you could truly learn because he was full of the same insecurities that I am. And who is your favorite current conductor? My favorite current conductor is Simon Rattle. I simply never tire of the inspiration of his music making. Uh, um, I, it doesn't surprise me that you said Simon Rattle because the two of you are synonymous with decades now of wonderful concerts and, um, uh, and projects together. What is the hardest work you have ever conducted? St John Passion by James Macmillan. I knew how difficult this would be, so I, uh, in the week I did this in Berlin, there were five days of orchestra and choir and soloists rehearsals, and on every day I booked myself a massage after the four-hour rehearsal so that I could be standing up the next day. What was it about it that made it the hardest? Um, the music is extremely difficult. I had to make sure that I could really hear it and also make sure that everyone could play it and sing it because no one knew it. And it was music that was quite demanding physically to conduct and technically one had to be extremely clearly on top of the patterns, the changes and so on. And not all of them were obvious by any means. Now, I'm speaking to somebody who I know have, probably has more air miles than any other conductor I can think of. So when travelling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? Actually, I leave home without everything because what I try to do is make sure that where I work, I work regularly because I'm not very interested in guest conducting. So I try to keep on going back to Barcelona or back to Berlin. And so what we have is we will have a very small studio apartment that we hire for a number of years. And in it is everything so that I can travel carrying the newspaper. What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? The loneliness. And that's another reason why I try to avoid guest conducting. When you go somewhere for the first time, even if you have a very good time, um, you're sort of on trial and you don't know anybody and you're trying to make hundreds of new friends at the same time. So I like on the whole to keep on going back to the same places where you are not a stranger. Really very, very true indeed. As somebody who does a fair amount of guest conducting, I love going back to places I've been to before. Um, even if, you know, I, I don't go out every night, but you know, and meet people that you know. But if you do go somewhere that you know a lot of people, it makes such a difference. But don't you think also, for example, just say the RLPO or something, on the second occasion you, you, you conduct them, you know what they feel like. So it's a different, you know, it's not, it's not just endless one night stands. Yeah, absolutely. It makes such a big difference. Yeah, such a big difference. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I always assumed I'd be a teacher, so I was surprised when I uh, didn't become one. 
and I think if I had my time again, that would also be my fallback. I think I might have been rather a good teacher, and I think I would have enjoyed it. And finally, if the world were to end tonight, what would your choice of final meal and drink be? I would have an English fry-up, a traditional English breakfast, for the simple reason that with cholesterol problems now, I never allow myself to eat them my, my favourite food. <laughs> uh, would that be with a cup of tea or coffee? Uh, these days, a cup of coffee. Can I thank you, Simon, for a wonderful, wonderful chat? And I look forward to seeing you very soon. Our mic on the podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat with a conductor who can count Simon Rattle and Claudio Bardo among his mentors. He first conducted the CBSO at the age of 17 and the Berlin Philharmonic at the age of 21, and in conducting terms could legitimately be called a child prodigy. Until then, bye bye. <laughs> <laughs>